It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Dowd, were you once a police officer of the New York City Police Department? Yes, I was. How long were you a police officer? Ten years and five months. Mr. Dowd, during those ten years as a police officer, did you use your authority to commit crimes and acts of corruption in violation of your sworn duty to uphold the law? Yes, I did. While you were in uniform and on duty, did you commit thefts? Yes. Did you commit extortion? Yes. Did you engage in narcotics trafficking? Yes. Did you protect drug operations? Yes. Did you engage in personal drug use? Yes. How many crimes and acts of corruption do you estimate you committed as a New York City police officer? Hundreds. In May of 1992, a corrupt cop working out of the 75th precinct in Brooklyn is arrested. His name is Michael Dowd, and the New York Post puts him on its cover, calling him the dirtiest cop ever. It's not that difficult to uh, take money and drugs from any drug dealer. You get a call, you get a description, you show up, he's standing on the corner, he's got drugs, he knows he's going to jail if you want. So instead of uh, sending him to jail, you take his drugs and his money. Just reach into his pockets and take his drugs and his money? Yeah. Did you ever leave him any drugs or any money to keep him happy? Yeah, sure. You didn't want to get him, you know, too upset with you. What's the reason for that? Well, you didn't want to, you know, if, if he was broke, he'd have to answer to his bosses, so you'd have a, you know, next time uh, you may have a problem with him. And, he, and his boss would tell him, make a complaint on this cop. So in other words, you would leave him some drugs and money in order to keep him satisfied and perhaps keep him silent about your activities? Yes, without a doubt. How often did these shakedowns occur? About five times a day. What began with shaking down small-time street dealers eventually turned into being on the payroll of one of the biggest drug bosses in Brooklyn and then running his own cocaine ring on Long Island. And Michael Dowd didn't hide any of it. He even drove to and from the precinct in his flashy new red Corvette. How much money were you making a week for your narcotics activities? The guy was paying me $8,000 a week. How much money were you making a week from your New York City paycheck? About 400 How important was that New York City paycheck to you at this time? Well, I used to forget to pick it up. So, Mr. Dowd, did you consider yourself to be a New York City cop or a drug trafficker? Well, it's just... Both. George Nova knew a lot of drug dealers, a lot of heavyweights that were in that neighborhood. 
I was warned from various people, he's dirty, he's corrupt, don't trust him. I confronted him and I asked him, I said, hey, George, I've heard some stories, man. I'm not going to be a party to any of that. And he was like, no, man, that's bullshit. The culture of policing that had been created by the crack markets was one of accepted lawlessness. And it creates the condition in which everything has to be silenced. 555 West 151st Street, the first time I took money. The first time was the hardest time, and after that, everything is easy. I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode 3, The Commission. We have more news this morning. A former New York police officer was on the take for 10 years. He was never turned in because of the police code of silence. Michael Dowd went before Judge Kimba Wood in his jail clothes, at times acting jovial. Then after describing his crimes in detail, the man dubbed the dirtiest cop quietly copped a guilty plea to drug and racketeering charges. The deal will most likely land him 12 and a half to 15 years, eight months behind bars, rather than a possible life sentence. In return for his plea, Dowd will provide details about his drug operation to prosecutors. Aside from taking payoffs from dealers... The news of Michael Dowd's corruption shakes the city. Crime and violence are out of control, and Dowd was out there, in his uniform, competing with drug dealers. Ray Kelly, the NYPD's new commissioner, tries to calm the tension. Message to members of the New York City Police Department and to the public we serve is that if there are police officers attempting to commit corrupt acts or violate our code of conduct, they will be caught, arrested, and separated from the department. But the NYPD has a lot more to answer for, because there's a much larger issue here than Michael Dowd. It's that the system designed to catch him had failed completely because Dowd was caught by the Suffolk County Police Department on Long Island, not the NYPD's Internal Affairs Division, IAD, whose sole existence is to root out dirty cops like Dowd. This issue is now top of mind for New York City Mayor David Dinkins. If IAD failed to catch Michael Dowd, Dinkins' obvious concern is if other Dowds are out there We demand high standards of conduct from our police officers, and we will tolerate no less. So on July 24th of 1992, Mayor Dinkins impanels a commission to look into the failings of the NYPD, find out what needs to be fixed, and make recommendations for reform. But this information wasn't going to stay in-house. Dinkins wants the commission's findings to be presented to the public, out in the open for the world to see. To lead the commission, he taps his former deputy mayor of public safety and longtime New York State judge, Milton Mollen. Dinkins' directive to Mollen is just eight words. I want you to investigate the police department. The mayor has appointed a civilian panel to look into charges of alleged police wrongdoing. Former deputy mayor Milton Mollen will head the mayor's panel. The announcement came on the same day. The Mollen Commission, as it comes to be known, has a massive job ahead of it. And Judge Mollen, 72 years old, needs someone to lead the investigation. 
His old friend and legendary Manhattan District Attorney, Robert Morgenthau, recommends a former state prosecutor from his office who might be the perfect fit. A 36-year-old by the name of Joe Armeo. I picked up the phone and I get this unmistakable voice on the other end of the phone saying, Joe, heard lots of good things about you from Bob Morgenthau. I'd like to get together and have a chat. And so I decided to go and see him. And Judge Marlin and I just hit it off right from the start. We just chatted about New York and what was happening in the police department and where the areas of vulnerability were. And we understood each other implicitly. And so there was no pause in the conversation. Judge Marlin, despite all of his accomplishments and his great legal mind, was a tried and true, died-in-the-wool New Yorker. He had a lot of street smarts. And when we talked about New York and what was going on in New York, it was like we were from the same neighborhood. Judge Mullen grew up in the East New York neighborhood of Brooklyn during the Great Depression. He was a World War II hero who survived being shot down over occupied France and then incredibly escaped from a Nazi prison camp. Afterwards, Mullen dedicated his life to civil service in New York City. Joe Armeo grew up in the Howard Beach neighborhood of Queens, the home of mob boss John Gotti. Peter Gotti, John Gotti's brother, lived just three or four doors down from where we lived. Across the road was the head of the Lucchese family, a guy named Anthony Casso, who had the uh, very interesting nickname Gas Pipe, for whatever reason that may have been. And a few doors down from him was the head of the Bonanno family. So I grew up in a neighborhood where there were this dichotomy between hardworking first and second generation immigrant people and the mob. I'll give you an example. I had a friend, and I'll just call him Sandy. His father always seemed unusual to me because he was always at home. When my father was up early in the morning and going to work and coming home, you know, at night on the bus. And I once asked him, I said, Sandy, and I must have been, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old. I said, I don't understand that. I never see a father go to work like my dad and Billy's dad and Jimmy's dad. What does he do for a living? He said, he doesn't do anything for a living. So I said, well, then how does he get paid? And he said to me, well, if he doesn't get paid, then he does something. As we grew up and got into our teens, there was one friend who was found in the trunk of a car on the corner of Crossbay Boulevard and 156th Avenue in Howard Beach. That was the risk you took. You had two ways to go. There were two roads, and those two roads were pretty distinct and pretty definable. My dad knew about this, and he always emphasized education. He always said to me, listen, the world can take a lot from you, but they can't take from you what's up here. And he would point to his head. And I guess that became ingrained in me. And so I decided that I wanted to uh, pursue books. 
Armeo attended Columbia University, then studied Italian Renaissance history at Oxford, and then went to Harvard Law. After graduation, he was personally hired by Robert Morgenthau himself to work in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He took the lead on large-scale corruption cases, including organized crime. He convicted several members of the Lucchese crime family and even indicted his old neighbor, Anthony Gaspipe Casso. In a profile of Armeo, the New York Times said he was known for taking isolated cases and turning them into building blocks for large-scale investigations. He was exactly what Judge Mullen was looking for. So what was supposed to be an hour interview turned into about three hours or more because the very important aspect of this, right from the beginning, that Judge Mullen and I agreed on is that this could not just be a historical study about what went wrong in the past. The failures of IAD, what allowed Michael Dowd to happen? What about the accountability of the commanders? That would not be enough. Because in order to get the kind of lasting reforms that we were hoping the police department and the city would accept, we'd have to show that it was still happening while the commission was doing its work. So it was a two-track mission. What were the failures of the past and what is the problem in the present? So not only was it a huge task to begin with, but we made it even bigger for ourselves because we're not only gonna look at the past, but we're gonna try to do current investigations and see what that brings. But one thing I knew, really from that meeting, is that everyone in the police department, from the police commissioner to the cop on the beat, would want this commission to fail. No institution, and you really can't blame the NYPD about this, wants its dirty laundry washed in public. So I also knew that this huge institution with a lot of power would be working to ensure the failure of this commission. And whenever you mess with an institution like the police department, it's bound to be political fireworks. But that challenge really excited me. And so I decided, look, this is an opportunity I really cannot let go. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Armeo leaves his interview with Judge Mollen as chief counsel of the Mollen Commission, which means he'll be running the show. And that's when the reality of what's ahead hits him. I thought to myself, wow, how am I ever going to do this? What I knew was that we needed people who would hit the ground running, wouldn't have to learn about what it means to be a cop and a cop in New York City. One of the first people Armeo thinks of is someone he knew from his days working mob cases in the DA's office, an investigator named Frank O'Hara. O'Hara's part of the New York State Organized Crime Task Force, and before that, he was a detective and 20-year veteran of the NYPD. If anybody knows what it means to be a New York cop, it's Frank O'Hara. Joe Armeo called me and said, Frank, I've accepted the position to be the chief counsel at the uh, Mullen Commission. And because of the Dowd investigation, we have two questions to answer. Is the type of corruption like Michael Dowd going on in other precincts? And is internal affairs doing an effective job? That was the two questions. And he said, I'll have to bring you on board as the deputy chief investigator to run some investigations. You have to say to yourself, if you're a reasonable person, well, if they were so bad with Michael Dowd, so inept, so incompetent, what leads you to believe that they showed any kind of competency in any other complaints that were coming in regarding the same type of allegations in other precincts? You know, is is IAD totally asleep? What's the police commissioner doing? You know, something's wrong with this picture. Something's very wrong. The New York City Police Department has the greatest detectives in the world, bar none, the greatest. They crack cases day in and day out. How come they can't when it comes to corruption? Just a question, just a question. Frank O'Hara is someone you have to meet to believe. He is just such a hardened, grizzled investigator, right out of central casting, who really, really knows his business. And believe it or not, making these police corruption cases is very much like making organized crime cases. You have to build them up. You have to turn informants. You have to get wires up. You have to get physical evidence, surveillance. 
And so having Frank on board was a godsend. Well, past investigations that I was involved with organized crime, you learned very quickly. We called it the set. John Gotti, where he was on 101st Avenue in Ozone Park, meeting with people, or Mulberry Street, meeting with people. You could not be too close to what we called the set. In other words, where the movie took place, a movie set. You couldn't be that close to the set because you'd stand out. People that are committing crimes know the tricks, they know the van, they know the periscope and the roof. It's out of place, it's here every day, I don't see anybody in it, it comes and goes. After a while, they'll pick up on you. O'Hara's specialty is surveillance, running wires. So the way we uh, bug a place, wiretap a place, is, uh, of course, we don't do it in broad daylight. We can avoid it. What we tried to do is usually we would be like burglars. We would work very early on a Monday morning, Sunday night going into Monday morning. And why that night? Well, most people go to bed early on Sunday because they're going to work on Monday after a weekend. So we would try and uh, set a time of about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning where we would make an entry into a location where we had to plant the book. On this particular Sunday night into Monday morning, we were in Ozone Park and we had the office staked out. We had people, lookouts around the neighborhood to make sure that our guys would be safe that were going in. In early 1986, John Gotti was the newly minted boss of the Gambino crime family. And Frank O'Hara's team was about to break into his office. There was only one lock to pick. It was a paired lock. And the fellow who picked the locks was very good at what he did. And then he opened the lock within 30 seconds. And in they went. One thing that they were supposed to do that they didn't was put another lock on the hasp so nobody could come in behind them. They got in so quick and the neighborhood was so quiet, they felt they'd be in and out within 15 minutes. So they didn't put the lock on. About 10 minutes after they're in the location, a car is driving past the location, stops and backs up. And you could tell they're right in front of the office and they're poised in the middle of the street, just double parked. Oh shit. So that caused me to drive by them and just glance at them very casually and keep driving. They followed me. I got on the walkie talkie and told everybody what was going on, and this car was following me. They followed me for about a half a mile, and when I approached the Van Wick Expressway, they got off me, they made a U-turn to go back to the location. I turned onto the expressway in case they were watching to make them a believer that I wasn't a cop, I wasn't anything. By that time, the entry team was out, The place was locked up, and they were out of harm's way. The people went to the club, 
to his office. The one person got out, had a key to the lock, opened it up and went in and looked around. We were very, very lucky that night. It was a very close call of almost getting caught, which would ruin the investigation. Thank God, I'd rather be lucky than good. If they would have got caught in the location, John probably never would have went back to that location ever. When you're listening to somebody for eight or nine hours a day, you might only get 15 seconds of a good conversation. The rest is all nothing. So it it can be very boring. But John Gotti came back from a meeting with all the capos in the family that took place in a restaurant in Brooklyn. And when he came back to Ozone Park, it was very late. He came back around 1.30 in the morning. And the first person he spoke to was his right-hand man, Angelo Ruggiero. Angelo said to him, maybe we should take this conversation outside. And John said, nah, the cops are sleeping. And he started telling Angelo in the office what he was going to do, who he was going to make, who he was going to break. So that was a tape that was used against John Gotti in the trial that convicted him. O'Hara helped put away one of the most notorious mob bosses in American history. And he also helped develop what became known as the Case of Cases, which resulted in the indictments of the heads of all five organized crime families in New York. His investigation experience with the mob is unrivaled. But now, Jaramayo's asking him to catch dirty cops instead. I said, well, I'd gladly do it, but... Is there going to be anything with cops taking long meal periods, sleeping on the late tours, or drinking beer when they're having pizza? He said, no, absolutely not. I said, because I will not be part of any of that bullshit, that petty stuff. If you're talking about cops stealing drugs, that's another thing. O'Hara becomes the Mullen Commission's deputy chief investigator. He'll be running a team in the field, trying to build an active case. Joe Armeo will be looking into why the NYPD's Internal Affairs Division, or IAD, wasn't making these cases themselves. And both Armeo and O'Hara know that the keys to both facets of the investigation, past and present, live inside the walls of IAD. So the first thing we had to know is what did IAD know? And the only way you can do that was to see what the paper said. Armeo makes a massive document request. One of the reasons why we made such a broad request for documents was not only to get all of the information that we could then refine into the most profitable areas to look into, but also because you wanted to make sure that they didn't understand where you were looking, because you didn't want any cover-ups. Many times, cover-up is worse than the crime, and, you know, given where we were, I just didn't have complete confidence that the NYPD was going to be truthfully and sincerely cooperative. Armeo adds another Harvard Law grad to the team to be his deputy chief counsel, second in command on the Mullen Commission. Her name is Leslie Kornfeld, 
In many ways, we were at the mercy of the department that we were investigating to give us the documents that would incriminate them. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what motivations would exist in that scenario. Based on the original mandate from Mayor Dinkins, all city agencies, including the NYPD, have to comply with the commission's requests. But that doesn't mean they have to make things easy. They were delivering dozens and dozens of boxes of meaningless documents to try to just bury us in unimportant, meaningless paperwork. So we were suspecting that there were things that we were not getting, but we were at a loss as how to identify it. The NYPD dumps a total of 246 boxes of documents at the commission's office. Armeo and his team of attorneys spend weeks sifting through all of it, as well as tips they're getting from New Yorkers. Once, you know, the information got out in the press that the commission was looking into corrupt cops, I noticed that our reception area in our office was becoming a little bit busier. And it became busier with people that um, you might not think were going to give you really good information because a couple of them would actually come in with hats made of aluminum foil that seemed to be twisted up into the air around the head with like an antenna. Uh, And I remember meeting with one of these guys in the reception area and him telling me that the CIA was communicating with him about corrupt cops in New York City. And then he had it all laid out for me. And if I would just meet with him, he'd tell me exactly who the corrupt cops were, their names, where they lived, what they were doing. And then one day I'm sitting at my desk and a phone call comes through. And on the other end, there's this mechanical voice like a voice disguiser on the phone, saying, you want to look at the tickler file? You want to see the tickler file? And so you have to then make an assessment. Is this some, like, crazy person, or is this something that we should look into? But what distinguished the guy with the mechanical voice on the phone was that he spoke in police jargon. There was something authentic, something credible about what he was telling us. The man tells Armeo to call him Mr. G. He first started by saying that IAD is even more corrupt than the cops on the street, and that to prove it, the IAD commanders were hiding cases that would cause them or other members of the police department embarrassment. And that if we would just focus all of our efforts on the tickler file, whatever that was, we would find out the cases that the IAD was trying to bury. Focus on the tickler file. I remember sitting in Joe's office in the chair in front of his desk 
And just thinking that this guy, Mr. G, is literally giving us the roadmap. We had suspicions that he could actually be an IAD officer. We arranged to have a meeting with him. We met him in a motel where we got to find out his identity and, in fact, verify that he was an officer in IAD. Mr. G tells Armeo that the IAD bosses don't want him to find the tickler file because it's the key to his investigation. He tells him he needs to ask for the file sitting inside the nondescript box on the floor, right outside the door to the office of Chief Bob Beatty, the head of IAD. And so immediately we sent out a subpoena to the Internal Affairs Division about getting the tickler file. And we did eventually get it. Inside the file is a stack of manila folders containing allegations of very serious corruption, drug dealing, bribes, assaults, none of which were properly logged or investigated or passed along to the district attorneys to decide if charges should be brought. Instead, they were sent to the Tickler file to die. But inside the Tickler file is something even more explosive, a smoking gun. It's an allegation that a female cop was using drugs and protecting dealers. She's the daughter of an IAD supervisor. And attached to her file is a handwritten note from Chief Beatty's boss, Chief Daniel Sullivan. The note reads, Bob, don't enter this one in any records until later. It's proof that internal affairs was hand-selecting cases and making them disappear. Finding the Tickle file was an important step into the investigation of the operations of IAD, not so much for the content of the complaints that were in the Tickle file, but the very fact that it existed. So if you're looking into a system that is trying to protect itself and you find out that there is this deliberate attempt to bury and hide complaints, Regardless of the nature of the complaints, that in itself shows you something about the system that is even more important than the substance of the complaints. Every institution takes its personality from its leaders. And if its leaders saw their primary duty as avoiding any reputational scandal then you had to know that the fish stunk from the head down. After Mr. G helped the Mullen Commission, his identity was leaked. He was labeled a rat and harassed relentlessly. Even after he was transferred, his reputation followed him for the rest of his short career. But as for the commission, Mr. G had helped it gain full access to IED's files. And Frank O'Hara begins looking into which precincts have open corruption allegations similar to Michael Dowd's. If he can find another Dowd and generate a case using the files sitting right under IAD's nose, the Mullen Commission can show the public that the NYPD can't be left alone to police itself. But just like Armeo, O'Hara can't tip his hand as to which precincts he's looking at. 
We really had to keep our information close to the chest. Why? Loose lips sink ships. Who knows what they would have leaked so that we wouldn't be able to be successful. So we kind of tried to rope-a-dope them, put them to sleep. We would try and say to them, we're doing a statistical report, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't want them to know that we were probably at some point going to have field investigations going. In the course of reviewing a lot of files, it came very evident that the 30th Precinct could have a very serious problem of cops, drugs, drug dealers, and money. There were many, many, many complaints about a number of officers in that precinct. And the old adage where there's smoke, there's fire. You could see that IED had a number of open complaints in that precinct. O'Hara zeroes in on one particular cop from the 30th Precinct, Officer George Nova. Nova's file has 27 complaints against him, 17 involving drugs and corruption, including robbing drug dealers and selling the stolen drugs to other dealers he's friendly with. He was an all-star. He was a Hall of Fame corrupt cop. He was a known quantity in that neighborhood. Everybody knew George Nova was ripping people off. But most astonishingly, these complaints weren't only made by anonymous sources. Several of them were made by other police officers. He says, slide, these cops are ripping off dealers and they're selling this stuff. And George Nova is one of the big guys inside there. Back in episode one, Sly Francis, the undercover narcotics detective who was forced to sniff a line of coke at gunpoint, said he'd reported Nova to IAD after being told by his confidential informant that Nova was stealing drugs. We gave that information. We gave Eternal Affairs George Nova's name. Nothing was done. Sly had even offered to let IAD interview his informant, but they chose not to. All of this information is spelled out plainly in Nova's file, which, until Frank O'Hara picked it up, was collecting dust at IAD. It was malfeasance not to do the right investigation. This was a no-brainer. It was right there in plain sight. Corruption is contagious. Once people start seeing how easy it is, corruption is contagious. It spreads like a virus. The 3-0 at the time was wholesale narcotics. So when you have narcotics, you have guns, you have literally money all over the place. Last episode, Officer Joe Walsh had become part of Sergeant Kevin Nannery's conditions unit. They were booming doors and stealing keys to apartments to find drugs and guns, and then making illegal arrests. But then they started stealing money. For Joe Walsh, it began with just 20 bucks, which he used to buy beer. He said that first time was hard, and then everything after became easy. So we were always stopping guys. They had, you know, $10,000, $12,000. So it's like, you know what? 
let's just take a little bit more beer money this time. So we'll take 50 bucks this time. Easy, yeah, no problem. They don't say anything. They're happy. They're not arrested. They go away. They're fine. It's like, you know what? Let's let's go 100 bucks. Let's take a little bit more, a little bit more. Then we'd whack it out. Whatever we had, we'd split evenly between whoever was there. One time, I had made a car stop. I followed him, pulled him over immediately, popped the trunk, and then, like, bags was, uh, you know, cash. Lots and lots of cash. I wound up taking, I think, $15,000. For the conditions unit, making arrests has taken a backseat to making scores. Walsh even begins dialing in fake 911 calls to give him an alibi for hitting drug spots. He makes the calls from payphones on the same block as the apartments he hits, so he can be the first to arrive on the scene and take whatever he can. So I call on a fake 911. We get into an apartment through the back window was open. So we're finding money all over the place. So I took money, throwing it down my vest. Like, fuck it, let me take a little bit more. So we're finding the guns and drugs. I'm like, fuck this, let me take a little bit more. So I put more money down my vest. Now I'm walking around and the money's getting loose and a stack falls out on the floor. Other guys are there. So now I'm kicking this rubber band stack of money down the hallway. I'm trying to kick it into the bathroom to readjust everything. So now I took the car back to the precinct. And at that time, I ran down to the locker room. I took, I think, three or four bundles. I put it in shoes on top of the lockers, like all dusty shoes. So if anybody searched my locker, there'd be nothing there. Walsh gets away with 13 grand, and he kicks a few hundred dollars up to his boss, Sergeant Nannery. It's a sign of respect, Walsh says, just like the mafia. By this point, corruption in the precinct is so open that nobody in the 3-0 even calls their team the conditions unit. They have a new name, Nannery's Raiders. Here's 3-0 officer Barry Brown. There was a lot of talk about how out of control the precinct was, especially when it came to Nannery and his raiders, because they were just so out of control and so brazen that everybody was talking about all the doors that they were knocking down, arrests that they were making, money that they were taking. People just couldn't believe it was happening. Everybody was saying, hey, stay away from these guys, stay away from these guys. I never spent a lot of time with Joe Walsh because we were in different units. Sometimes guys would get together after work and drink underneath the George Washington Bridge. And he would be down there you know, drinking and I you know, get a chance to talk to him and a lot of the other cops a, a little bit. After a while, they would take their guns out and start firing shots in the air, firing shots towards Jersey. And that's when I would get the hell out of there. We'd be down at Riverside Park, letting rounds go off. We'd be in Lower Manhattan, you know, Second Avenue. 
letting rounds go. One time, we were laying tile in my apartment. So we're drinking all day, drinking all day, drinking all day. So we go to a bunch of bars in the Bronx. We're hooting it up pretty good. Bar sucked, so we're like, ah, we'll go somewhere else. Once they get outside the bar, Walsh pulls his gun out and fires off a couple shots into the air. Fellow raider and close friend, Officer Billy Knox, is standing right next to him. So I was just putting my gun back. I had it cocked, my gun was cocked, and my gun went off and hit Billy in the left shoulder. Now it's like, holy fuck, holy fuck, holy fuck, what do we do? So we go to Billy's apartment, take a look at him. We didn't know how bad he was at the time. We take off his shirt. He wasn't bleeding that bad. He, it, Billy's a monster. He was like an ox. Big, big guy. He wasn't bleeding that much. So we were all shitting ourselves. So I was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we come up with the story. So it's like Billy was going to another bar. He went out to take a piss on Broadway in the 190s when he, somebody tried to rob him. He goes to run away, then he gets shot. And that was the story. They take Knox to the hospital, and the next day, Walsh gets a message to call the 30th precinct. So I called the command. They said, you know, Billy's been shot. I'm like, oh my God, he shot? How did that happen? So played it off. Others in the precinct, including supervisors, know that one cop shot another while they were drunk outside a bar. It's something that would be all over the news if the truth ever came out. So it gets buried. No discipline comes. And the virus inside the 3-0 advances. I was working by myself. There was a radio run of shots fired on 146th Street. So I go there and there's like people running down the stairs. I stop them. I'm like, what's going on? I heard shots up there. I get to the apartment. You smell gunpowder in here. Boom! Then the door opens. So I got my gun. I'm right there. Little girl's there. She shot my mommy. He shot my mommy. Shot my mommy. So I take the girl, get her out of the way. So all of a sudden you hear uh, crying. You hear a baby crying. And it's like motherfucker. Fuck it. We got to go in. It's a railroad apartment, meaning it's one long hallway, and on the right there were doors. The first door, I knew it was the uh, spot where it happened because it was bullet holes coming through the door. So I'm standing with my right foot. I kick the door and, it, you know, there's somebody on the door. So it's like, motherfucker, this is going to get ugly. So I kick the door in more. I stick my head in. There was a guy against the door. 
He had a gun in his hand. He ate the gun. Straight across from him was his girlfriend whom he shot. And on the bed to the right, the first thing I saw was an infant just wailing on the bed. It's a murder-suicide. As others arrive, Walsh leaves the room. But not before stealing a CD of the album, Ghost in the Machine, by the police. Also, $100 sitting right there on the table. Just a few short years after having his 57 request for transfer denied, the 30th Precinct has swallowed up Joe Walsh. The way I rationalized to myself, it's, I was the first one through the door going to get this kid. I knew there were shots fired. I heard the shots fired. I saw holes through the door. So if, if, I'm like, fuck it. If there was a hundred bucks there, I took the hundred bucks. He couldn't use it anymore. Next time on the set. I said, you have my word that nobody's going to know about this meeting with you and me. Frank O'Hara finds out just how deep the corruption goes in the 3-0. I said, holy shit, we got some mess on our hands. And that the NYPD knew about it, but allowed it to happen. When I told them collectively what we stumbled on, their jaws dropped. Their jaws dropped. And Barry Brown's secret is revealed. The game was rigged, and I was the only one who didn't realize. The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales, and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese-Dennis, Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.